turn in our Bibles together to the book of Galatians as we continue yet again this week in our study in this book of the New Testament. For those of you using the black Bibles around you, I'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to grab one of those. Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. That's page 973 in those black Bibles around you. As we get started, for those of you that have not been with us, I'd like to read something that I think is very helpful at setting the stage, not just for this particular message, but I think it just helps set the stage for the entire book of Galatians. This is just a short excerpt from a book I was reading this week that's giving commentary on Galatians. It goes like this, it's what he would have wanted. How often has that phrase been used to settle an argument? Say, for example, when someone has died and the family is trying to organize the funeral or the disposal of the property or the appropriate way to bring up orphaned children. Family disputes about what so-and-so would have wanted can sometimes be as difficult as the disputes about the inheritance itself. All pastors know the frustration of trying to organize a funeral service, which includes the music, the readings, and the other bits and pieces which the deceased would have wanted. So how much more satisfactory is it when the lawyers keep reminding us to have all of it set out in black and white so there are no questions about what he really wanted? Paul's argument in the book of Galatians is that God has set out in black and white what he wanted, what he intended, and so that no subsequent disputes would alter it. The point he's making here in this passage in Galatians 3 is that the Galatian agitators, the Galatian false teachers that are coming in, are like people at a funeral trying to sneak in their own agenda. Particularly, their desire is for an ethnic Israel without worshiping with uncircumcised Gentiles under the idea that, well, that's what God would have wanted. That's what Jesus would have wanted. And so it seems that the strength of these false teachers is that the law of God was given to Israel through Moses And that that is on their side of the argument. However, here we will see Paul's counter-argument is that the original covenant is clear in black and white. And there is no question about changing it. The law has a different purpose altogether. End quote. I think that helpfully summarizes what we're about to dive into. The book of Galatians is the black and white explanation from Paul. No, no, no. Here's what he always wanted. And the short answer is not your performance, not your obedience by obeying God's laws. What he always wanted from the beginning was faith and trust in his promises. That's the core of this book. It's the core of our text today. And so as we look down, let's read our text in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. To give a human example, brothers, 
Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Oh, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I don't know what your impression after that first read, especially if you've done zero preparation for this morning's message. You've not read ahead. You've not studied ahead. That's the first time in recent memory you've read Galatians 3, 15 through 25. My guess is that some of you are like, I think I got a little bit of that, but I feel like we're swimming in the deep end here and I'm not quite sure what he just said. That was honestly some of my first reads when I've read over this passage. This, this, there is a bit of complexity here. There's a lot of theologically dense, weighty material. And so we're going to hopefully try and make sense of it for everyone in this room, no matter where you're at. And that's not always an easy task. So here's the outline for this morning. I'm going to give you two big ideas, breaking this passage into halves, two halves, two big ideas. We're going to look at the texts, walking through them briefly so you can see those big ideas in these texts. Then I want to give you three glorious truths about the Bible as we walk through these texts and see some great, wonderful takeaways for us. So first, let's take our first big idea. Here it is. This is verses 15 through 18. If we take that section of this passage, I think you could summarize it this way. Paul is trying to tell us that the promise given to Abraham came first, and it is better than the law that the inheritance of God's promise, the blessings that God promised Abraham, will come then through the promise by faith, not obedience to the law. That's, I think, big idea number one in verses 15 through 18. Big idea number two, verses 19 through 26. Well, if the law is inferior, why was it even given to begin with? That's the question you see right there in verse 19, right? So then why, why give the law if that's your point in that first big idea? 
Answer, the law was not given to secure or void or annul the promise. It was given to increase the sinning, increase the transgressions. So let's take big idea number one. Let's look at this passage and let's see if we can see that for ourselves. Starting in verse 15, he says, now I'd like to give an illustration, an example. He's a Bible teacher, and sometimes when you're not understanding things, you start talking about funerals and inheritance and what people do when people die and help it relates. So he starts by doing that in verse 15. Brothers, here's an example. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So here's the illustration. Even in covenants, contracts, oaths, once they're finalized, once they're ratified, once they're sealed and signed and it's done, they can't be changed. So you all know that, you understand that. If there's a contract, there's a covenant, there's an oath made, there are some of them that cannot be altered afterwards. They are just done and that's it. So he's asking you to think about that idea. And then in verse 16, he's going to say, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And then in verse 17, he's saying, now this is what I mean by this illustration and how this connects. Now look at the law. The law came 430 years afterward. After what? After the promise, after the covenant, after the sealed covenantal ceremony between Abraham and God. God made a promise. I will bless you, Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Believe it by faith and it is yours. He believed and it was credited to him as righteous. Did he have to get circumcised to make it true? Nope. Do you have to do anything to make it true? Just believe. And that's the first story of Abraham. Abraham, Genesis 12 through 22, 23, read it for yourself. We read some of it earlier in chapter 17. You see the promise that God made in that section. I believe Paul is quoting and referring that Old Testament reading we did earlier in our service this morning. So then he's saying 430 years after that, 430 years after that's sealed, after that's done, what comes? A new covenant, another covenant between God and his people Israel on Mount Sinai after they were delivered from the Egyptian slavery. So if you know the story, the people of Israel grow. The family does grow as God promised Abraham. He was faithful to his promises. He kept his promise to Abraham. The family's growing and growing and growing so big that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is really concerned and he enslaves them and then God delivers them through Moses. And on the other side of that deliverance, God makes a covenant the law, the Ten Commandments. And he says, if you would like to be my people, I'd like you to live in this way. And so now we're trying to figure out what do we do with this law and how does it relate to the previous covenant with Abraham? And he says, it's 430 years after. It did not come first. And look at what verse 17 says. It did not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance, and what's the inheritance? The blessings that God promised Abraham. So if the blessings that were promised by Abraham come by the law, it is no longer coming by a promise. So it's not like God made the promise to Abraham, 
And then 430 years go by, I changed my mind. Let's throw that one out. Let me switch the whole thing up. And now you can receive the blessing only through how you do at obeying the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that come after it. He's saying that's not what happened. It does not change the promise that was given to Abraham. And that's why it leads to the next question about, well, then what's the point of the law? But do you see the first point? Do you see the first big idea? The promise came first from Abraham. The inheritance then of God's blessings only comes by faith in the promise and not by your works of the law. Therefore, you Jewish, you Jewish Gentile, or you're, you're, you Galatian agitators, you false teachers, he's essentially saying circumcision, which is commanded in the law, that cannot be the way to receive God's blessing. Or to put it another way, look at verse 7 of Galatians 3. Notice what he's doing in this whole chapter. Know then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who's a true son of Abraham? That's the debate right now in these Galatian churches. Who's a true son of Abraham? Who's a true Jew? Who's really part of God's people? Answer in verse 7 of chapter 3. Those of faith. That's a son of Abraham. Drop down to verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed Blessed, the inheritance, the receiving of the blessing. Those who are what? Of faith receive that inheritance and blessing just like Abraham, the man of faith. Drop down to verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. He is making the point again and again that a true child of God, a true son of Abraham, a true believer that receives the blessing and promises and inheritance of God, salvation, eternal life, etc., etc. And there are so many good blessings, we don't have time to go over all of them this morning. You put them all in that one word, the blessing that is inherited to you, comes by faith. That's who a true Christian is then. A true follower of Jesus is one who is marked by his faith in the promise. That's big idea number one. Big idea number two Why then the law? What was the point of 430 years later giving them a law? Answer, big idea number two. The law was not given to secure the promise, but to increase the sin. Increase the transgressions. You have because of transgressions here in your English translations. The word because of could easily be for the sake of. And so now there's debate. How do we interpret this? I think the best way to interpret it is to compare it. If you want to, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20, I think gives us a good parallel for us to understand this big idea number two. It's on page 942, and Paul says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came on Mount Sinai to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I think that's the big idea of section number two. Do you see it here? Sin will increase until the perfect time comes when the offspring, singular, that offspring would come and the promise would be made complete that God made to Abraham. And that it was put in place, it says in verse 19, by angels and an intermediary. So first he says the law was given to increase sinning. 
In part, the law was given to increase sinning until the appropriate time when the law would be fulfilled through a man named Jesus. Essentially, as you read in context, that's what he's saying. Then he says, contrast law and contrast promise for Abraham. First contrast, the law was given through angels by an intermediary, mean a mediator. So who gave the Ten Commandments to people of Israel? Moses, he was a mediator. Who gave the promise to Abraham? Anybody speak on behalf of God or did God speak right to Abraham? Do you see the contrast and the inferiority comparatively from the law to the promise? That's what he's trying to say here. So you had angels to then Moses to then the people. And he's saying, oh, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God gave it and spoke by himself. God is one. Verse 21. So then is the law contrary? Is the law bad? Like what's what's the relationship between the law of God and the promise made to Abraham? Are they like in conflict with one another? And the answer is, well, of course not, you know? Emphatically, way, no, don't think that. You're, you are way off track if you start thinking that. Answer, why? Because if the law had been given that could give life, then the righteousness would just be by the law. He would have just gave the law in the first place. He would have never made the promise and made it by faith. He would have just said, here's the law, obey the law. Righteousness and life would come. But the scriptures, verse 22 imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Law cannot lead to righteousness. Law cannot lead to life. Law only leads to more sin and more imprisonment in that sin. Read your Old Testament. What happens when the people get God's law? They break it. Ten Commandments, here you go. Commandment number one, have no gods before me. Commandment number two, make no idols. Moses leaves up the mountain. Hey guys, I got an idea. Let's make some idols. Do you see what I'm saying? The story of the Old Testament is to tell you that the law was given and now it's exposing and it is increasing the trespasses. And you just keep reading the whole Old Testament. You want to just, a really good book, To make this point, but not a good book, to encourage your soul, read Judges this afternoon. The people get the law, and they disobey the law. But one day, the offspring would come. One day, the promise would be fulfilled. The scripture can only imprison us under our sin, but faith in Jesus Christ, for those who would believe, will give life, and it will give blessing. And so there's this contrast. So here's the, the, big, the big idea number two is to help you understand that the law serves a role. The promise serves a role. They are not in conflict with each other. They work together for the purpose that God had planned from the beginning for how he would communicate his plan of salvation. Verse 23, now you see the way that these two roles work together. Now before faith came, and he means by before the faith in Christ came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So before Jesus comes around, all you have is the Old Testament law, and you have nobody obeying God, and all they're receiving is curse, 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 judgment, 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 exile, exile, exile. It's not good news. But then, faith comes. Jesus comes. 
And that's why verse 24 says, so then the law was our guardian. It was our teacher. It was our tutor. It was our babysitter. It was a temporary tool for God to drive us to what? Christ. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by our faith. And now that the faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. We no longer need the law, and that's why you all do not obey the Old Testament law. If you have faith in Christ, you're under Christ, not under law. Okay, those are our two big ideas. Let's take three takeaways that I think are gloriously true about the Bible. Number one, the Bible is trustworthy, it is true, it is worthy of your trust. You should believe God and his promises because look at the way Paul talks about the Bible in this text. This, this is awesome, like really, really awesome. I hope your, your love for the Bible grows after we point out in verse 15 how he uses this little illustration that we saw. Now let me give you a human illustration, verse 15. Nobody annuls or adds to a covenant once it's been ratified and it's done, it's sealed. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. His whole point in that section is based on our one English letter S. Do you know how detailed that is? His whole point falls apart if the text in the Old Testament that was read to us in Genesis 17 has the wrong tenses and the wrong masculine feminine and it has the wrong plural or singular. Isn't that phenomenal? Isn't it awesome to see that the writer of the New Testament is looking back at the Old Testament saying, you can trust that the Bible that you have in front of you is reliable that it has been preserved by God's spirit, that you can trust that when it is plural, that matters, and when it is singular, that matters. Should we not then be students of the word, trusting it and looking at every little detail even at times? Any of you that have come to Wednesday night Bible study, you will know that sometimes on Wednesday night Bible study, we take each and every word and phrase and tense, and sometimes it is really good to just break apart the Bible and observe every little thing that you can see. And I think this passage gives us justification for doing just that. You can trust it. As a church, we have in our statement of faith a statement that says, the Bible is without error in its original manuscripts as God spoke it through these human instruments. We as a church have affirmed a teaching that you can trust that the words here are God's words. Paul cannot say this if he does not believe that the Bible has all kinds of errors in it and the tenses are mixed up and the plural singular issues are not secure. He trusts it. Do you trust it? We so trust the Bible to not only not have errors that we then conclude that statement in our statement of faith that says, so therefore Scripture is supreme as the highest standard of authority by which all matters of life and doctrine in this church are tested. Do you see how relevant this is for your life? What is the standard for us judging and thinking through how we live our life, how we live together in a church community, how we determine what's right and what's wrong? The answer, Scripture. 
Wrong answer, some church leader. Call it Pastor Phil, call it Board of Elders, call it the Pope, call it whatever you want. If the answer is not Scripture alone as the highest authority because it is trustworthy and it is God's word, it's, it's something that we should receive and take as God's word without any errors, and therefore, Scripture has highest authority at this church at Embassy. We do not pick and choose some verses and then say, well, that one, I don't actually want to obey that one. Well, that text meant something else back in that time, and I just don't like what it says about me, so I'm going to make it say something else. That's not what we do with the Bible. It's not what we want to do with the Bible. Sometimes we do do that with the Bible if we're honest. We're sinners. But what we should do is honor the text the way Paul does here. Search it diligently. Immerse ourselves in it. And not have the freedom to pick and choose. All scripture, Paul's going to say in another text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is useful. All of it is reliable. All of it is trustworthy. My friend, I just want to ask, do you believe that? Because God's promises, your eternal life, and everything that this church believes and is about is hanging on the balance of this truth. Some of you might be wondering, when I finished idea, big idea number two, and I said, so the Old Testament law then? We're not under that. Sounds like you're picking and choosing to meet, Pastor Phil. <laughs> oh, those Old Testament laws? Don't trim your beard. Beard looks trim, Pastor Phil. Don't cut your hair. Well, there's not much hair, but I still cut it. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't eat shellfish. Anybody eat bacon recently? Guilty. <laughs> you, know, you see what I'm saying? Like, how come we pick and choose the Old Testament laws? Well, we don't. We shouldn't. Truth number two. The Bible is trustworthy. That's truth number one. Don't pick and choose it. Truth number two. The Bible is like a theatrical play. Your sermon title you see in your bulletin is it is a progressive story. And therefore, you need to find how to read the story correctly and therefore apply it in the appropriate time and way. And one helpful illustration is to think about the Bible as a theatrical play and each act of the play is a covenant that God has made. A progressive story where God continues to reveal himself progressively, slowly over time until the whole thing has come to an end. So you could frame the Bible this way. There is Genesis 1 through 12, Act 1, the creation covenant. There's definitely a covenant with Noah, and many scholars, I think, have done an excellent job of pointing how that creation covenant is related to Genesis 1 and 2 and the covenant made with Adam. Either way, hopefully we're all in agreement. The first time the word covenant appears is Genesis chapter 9 in the first 11 chapters. So act 1 of the Bible story is the covenant with creation. And then there's a rainbow, and it's beautiful, it's colorful, it's ultimately telling us God will never judge the earth again. His bow is pointing upward 
act two, the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, get to chapter 15, the covenant ceremony is happening. Chapter 17, the covenant sign of circumcision is being given. That's act two. Act three, fast forward 430 years, a covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses. The people of Israel being formed as a nation state, rules and laws and regulations for how they're to live in the land of Canaan, the land that God promised in Act 2. The story's building off of each other. The covenants are interrelated. The players are still in the story of Act 1 and 2. But as they're in Act 3, they're to follow the script of Act 3, which is the Sinai Covenant. Did Abraham have the Sinai Covenant? No, he lived in Act 2. That was his script. That was where he lived and breathed and died and how he obeyed God by faith. Act 4, a covenant with David. You read 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David and says there will be an offspring, singular, and he will be a king over the nation of Israel. And this king will build a house for my name. You want to build me a house, David? I'm making a covenant that I'm going to build you a house through your offspring, singular. There's going to be one who comes, a particular person. So the story is continuing. The play is unfolding. You get to that part of the story, and David now is going to fulfill and live in that act. That's his script. Now we get to act five, the covenant with Jesus. Faith comes. The promises that were made to Abraham. The promises that were made, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. Instead, I'm going to let the bow of my anger and judgment to come on me. The cutting off of circumcision is going to happen to me. The obeying of the law fully and finally and obeying every single command and never once failing, I'm going to do that. The king, the one offspring who comes fulfilling all the promises of the story up to that point. That's me. And you get to act five and it's the crescendoing climax of the play where all other four acts are making sense in light of Jesus when he says, I bring good news. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe I am your king of all over Israel. I'm the one who's perfectly going to obey the law. I'm the one that's going to take on the covenant curse. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he says, then, go make disciples. He then says, obey all that I commanded you. And he says, listen to these apostles that I have commissioned out. And they then have written down our script in Acts 5. We are Jesus followers. Our script that we read, our commands, is the New Testament. That is our covenant document. That is how we interact with each other as a church. That is how you should obey Jesus. This is your text, the New Testament. But, but, but. Should we throw the rest of the four acts away? Should we just dismiss them all together? That makes no sense. That's like going to the end of the movie and stepping right in and be like, oh, that was a good movie. You didn't even see the whole thing. Or like trying to go in as a theatrical performer, not knowing acts one through four and getting your part of the script and having no idea what's been happening and trying to play your part. Now, you might be able to do it, but my guess is you will stumble along and you will not really get your part well. Friends, we immerse ourselves in Acts 1 through 4. We read them, we study them like every little detail in them. 
We want to know how God has been working and progressively working so that when we get to the New Testament, it makes so much sense. And therefore, a lot of the Old Testament laws can be useful, helpful, wise, good for you. Some of them you're going to know, well, that's been fulfilled in Jesus, and there's no sense at sacrificing animals anymore. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. We may or may not trim our beards, but that is not something that we're bound by. Our act is Act 5. All of this comes from an idea that here in this passage of Scripture, big idea number one, big idea number two, is that there are covenants being made with Abraham, a covenant being made with Moses at Mount Sinai, and that there is a progression and that there are temporary time periods for some of these acts. Then they come to a close. The next act opens the curtain. So that's more of a big picture summary of our passage that I see that God progressively works through these covenants for you and for me to know this is how we live our lives as a church. Implications for this are limitless, right? We, we should identify ourselves as a covenant people. All of scripture and human history, God has related to us People on earth through covenants. Our relationships then as a church are covenantal relationships because we are in a covenant with God. When we take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, you're going to take the covenant sign, just like there was circumcision, just like there was a rainbow, just like there was the Sabbath keeping, the covenant sign is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. That's who we are. We are a covenant people. We are bond together in an oath, in a promise. Therefore, it is right for us, I believe, to have a church covenant, not just a statement of faith summarizing some of the things we believe about Scripture and other matters, but also a church covenant document summarizing that the New Testament is our covenant document. And therefore, as a church, we have put together a one-page summary of what the New Testament teaches Christians should live like. Because we're covenant people. Because we obey the New Testament script for our marching orders from King Jesus. How about the other implication, for example, that if you immerse yourself in the story, you will quickly see that you play an important, a significant, a vital role, but it's small. You're not the main character, you're not the center stage. The story is not about you. Jesus, 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 all glory be to God. Immerse yourself in Acts 1 through 4 and you're waiting and can't wait to find Jesus. He comes onto the scene and you should be bursting with joy and emotion and gladness and worship to say, no, no, this story is about him. Do you see how there are limitless applications of this point? Until Christ came, our text says. The law served its purpose and then finally Christ came and faith came. Truth number three. The Bible is truthful. We can rely on its truthfulness. Number two, the Bible is a story, a theatrical play. Number three, the Bible could be summed up. S-O-S. S-O-S. You all know what S-O-S is? Children, those of you in the room, simple and easy. Want to know what the Bible, how God communicates to us, what's the main message of the Bible? All you got to remember, S-O-S, three letters. 
Now, what do those three letters stand for? Apparently, nothing. <laughs> SOS is a distress signal that these three letters have been used in Morse code, and the three letters actually don't stand for any words at all. But in popular lingo, it has been said, save our boat, save our soul. I kind of like save our soul. That's religious. Let's go with that. <laughs> SOS, the distress signal. The Bible is first at times. Not necessarily first, but it is point A. <laughs> it is SOS. It shows us our sin. God speaks to us, giving us laws to increase the trespass so that you will see your sin, so that you will realize that you have no righteousness to bring before God. The Ten Commandments, in part, were given to reveal to you that you are a sinner because the more you try to obey them, the more you realize, I am terrible at obeying them. So the Bible shows us our sin. The law was given to reveal the trespass. And that seems odd to us, doesn't it? Well, why would God give us laws and commands to increase the sinning? He's got a plan. He's got a story. Let the story unfold. There's twists in the story that make you get confused. Like, why would he do that? Well, it makes perfect sense when you read Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounds all the more. What if by the time you get to Act 5, all you're feeling as you're reading and studying and immersing yourself in the Bible is, wow, 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 I am helpless. I am ruined. Woe is me. I am undone. I need a Savior. What if that was you? And what if then the Savior came and he says, believe, just a promise by faith, that then grace then abounds all the more? Because have you ever walked outside in the middle of the night? And the darker it is, the, the brighter the stars shine. The darker your outlook is, the worse you feel about yourself, the more glorious and deep and wide the grace of Jesus Christ is. He was preparing and teaching all through those two, three, and four acts to tell us and tell the world, we are all broken sinners. We cannot obey God's law. And if we try, you will fail miserably. Just try. Have you done that experiment? I'm just going to really try. I'm going to do it this time. And how long do you last before you realize that the sin that remains leaves you flat down on your face? Woe is me. The greater the sin, the greater the grace. The more devastating the diagnosis, the more serious the patient will be to know and long for the cure. Think of the law of God as the instrument tool that God uses like the x-ray machines that looked at the picture of my ankle when I fell on some guy's foot playing basketball, and I thought, I'm okay. And I'm walking around with this big black and blue foot. Looks terrible. Everybody's saying you need to go see a doctor. And I'm like, no, look at me. I'm good. I go to the doctor. They take an x-ray. You have chipped off a lot of your bone here. You need to put a cast on. Oh. I'm now a more serious patient. The x-ray reveals the problem was worse than I thought. The law of God functions in that way. Can the x-ray heal my foot? No, no, no. Can the law of God produce life and righteousness? Oh, no, no, no. But it does an excellent job of revealing how serious the diagnosis is. My sister yesterday, she's been in the hospital getting CT scans. A virus went up into her brain. They were then able to, as a neurologist looks at the CT scan, see like, you've got some stuff in your brain and it's bad, so we need to do these 
drips and antibiotics. It looked bad because she was not looking good. The diagnosis comes. Yeah, here's now what we can see. But that did not heal her. Not until the cure came, not until the medicine comes, the antibiotics start pumping through her fluids. Now they know what to give. The first four acts of the Bible tell us the diagnosis and gives hints along the way, keeps putting foreshadows that there's going to come in Act 5, the climactic story of the Christ, the cure. He is the seed. SOS, the Bible shows us our sin. SOS, the Bible shows us our Savior. That's the other SOS. What's the cure? The promise that God made to Abraham has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It does not just show us our sin. The Bible saves our soul by showing us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you see in this passage? Look at verse 16 once more. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And how's it end? Who is Christ? The whole point of those verses in that opening part is to say that the promise will eventually come through one individual person, one offspring. His name is Jesus. And it actually didn't start in the promise made to Abraham. Read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And there will become one offspring, singular, who will crush the serpent's head. And that offspring is going to come through the family of Abraham. And that offspring is going to be like David, the king over Israel. And that offspring, read the first book of the New Testament. And what do you see? A genealogy. That's, that's boring. No, it's not boring. It's telling you the offspring, singular, is Jesus. The Savior that came into the world, born of a virgin. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the offspring. The Bible shows us our Savior Friends, have you immersed yourself in the scriptures to see that you need a savior? He is everything and that he has been revealed, he has been provided, and he has your salvation. All you need is faith. Have you acknowledged this morning that you're a sinner? Have you looked into the depths of God's law, compared yourself to it like a mirror looking at yourself and seeing, I do not look like the holiness that is being asked for in this passage. Some of you are here today and you already believe I'm a sinner and I need a savior, but my, my, my quest, question to you, my suggestion for you to take this away, for you Christians in this room, most of you, are you stepping even one step deeper into the knowledge that your sin is sour so that Christ can be the sweetest? Are you then abounding with love and gratitude because the more you look at God's law, the more you reflect at your life, the more that you do, you should pursue holiness, pursue godliness and try, try, try. But then yes, you will fail. You should have freedom to fail because there is a savior and then you look at the savior and your heart's warmed and it gives you courage and strength to go again, to get up and go again and try, try, try. And then you fail again and then you see your savior and then you get up and you go again. And this is our life, Christians. This is the act that we are in. Act five, that's our script. Is Christ sweet to you? Has your sin been freshly stinging and sour? 
I pray that you'll see the sweetness of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for this glorious word, the beauty of the Bible. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the preservation of the Holy Spirit, that we can trust these words, that they are in fact your words and not Pastor Phil's. Thank you, God, that we can look at the law of God and see our sin. What gracious love it is that you would give us an x-ray machine called God's law and show us the diagnosis is bad. You need a more intense cure. Thank you. That's loving. That's helpful. God, thank you forever and ever and ever for showing us our Savior, for seeing him as the climax of the story, for knowing that everything finds its yes and amen and its fulfillment in and through the work, life, resurrection, ascension, return of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that your promises remain that you're never changing, that nothing is going to void out your promise that you've already made. You've already delivered on so many of them. Why? Why are we so foolish to doubt your promises, God? Our inheritance is secured. Our future, all things will be ours. If you've already given us Jesus Christ, Will you not give us so much more in the world to come? So my prayer, God, for us as we conclude this worship service, as we sing these songs, as we take the Lord's Supper, help us, God, to see our sin, see our Savior, and follow you in grateful obedience to your law. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have